You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Ruth Umo, reporter at Forbes, and it's a pleasure to be in conversation with a panel of experts this evening in honor of McKinsey & Company's Women in the Workplace report. This is the third annual exploration of the results at Inforum. As a quick refresher for our radio audience, joining us virtually this year is Joyce Chang, a managing director at J.P. Morgan, Alexis Krikovich, a senior partner at McKinsey and co-author of the report, and last but certainly not least, Barry Williams, head of legal at Human Interest. As you can imagine, we have much to cover in this year's report, including COVID-19's impact on the modern workplace and what these massive shifts mean for women, people of color, and other marginalized groups. Again, if you'd like to ask us a question during this program, you can submit it in the comment or chat section of the live stream you're watching. We'll try to get through as many as we can toward the end of the program. Let's get started. Thank you so much, panelists, for joining me this evening. Absolute pleasure to be moderating the conversation. Alexis, I'd love to start off with you. Uh, First, as one of the leads on this white paper, I must ask, what was it like to author this year's report in light of all the complexity and the ongoing pandemic? (laughs) It it was an interesting experience. Um, So every year uh, we pull together for each of the past six years data from hundreds of companies across North America And we begin that process around March 1st. So you can imagine the timing of being just about to send uh, about a thousand emails out to companies to talk to them about enrollment for this year and having COVID-19 pandemic roll around the world. Um, We really had to pause and actually reflect, was it even logical to think about trying to undertake a conversation about diversity? And what we ultimately decided was if you look at any of the recent past historical um, major events around the world in terms of a financial crisis, women and people of color and marginalized groups always lose out more. So when jobs disappear, they disproportionately are impacted. And that was ultimately our realization that this was precisely the moment in 2020 we needed to have this conversation with companies because we needed to understand what was going on and and importantly ensure that we're having a conversation now, not two years from now, about what we need to do to help women, to help people of color, those with disabilities, maintain their foothold and continue their advancement in the workplace. As you noted, uh, it's very easy for companies to push DNI to the back burner during periods of economic and financial uncertainty, like the one that we currently are in. So I'm sure that this year's findings must have been unlike those of years past. Can you set the scene for us? What is the current state of the American workplace and how does it look for women, particularly those who are of ethnic or racial minorities, those who are BIPOCs? Yeah. Um, So if we set the backdrop of where we were coming into the crisis, we've made good progress at the front end of the pipeline, meaning entry-level jobs for women. Overall, we're at 48%, which is nearly a fair share of uh, workplace jobs in corporate America. For people of color, 
And for women of color in particular, that's 18%. Again, not quite, but closer to representation than we've been in the past. But by the time you get to the C-suite, women drop out at every level across um, organizations. And by the time you get to the C-suite, we're down to one in five women in the most senior roles. And for women of color, um, virtually not present. So the representation is simply not there. We've seen a lot of gain over the past few years. In fact, the biggest gains have come at the very top of companies, but they also had the most ground they needed to make up. So that was our starting point coming in. But the piece that is really the flashing red light now is the fact that when asked, one in four women said in the context of COVID, all the externalities surrounding it, one in four women said they feel they're going to neither need to either step back or step out of the workforce entirely. And that's truly momentous because never in the past have we seen that women saying, I can't do it, I want out, was the re reason they weren't advancing. They weren't advancing because of the structural barriers in the workplace, because of the bias, because of the lack of support, but they wanted to be in. But in the context of the pandemic and all that's coming with it, senior women, mothers, particularly those with young children, and women of color, especially black women, were saying, this is just unbelievably hard and it's disproportionately falling on my shoulders. I would, I completely agree with that. Um, but also something else that I would note is that there have been two studies that Fortune has done back to back in different years where it, it, black women want to succeed and Absolutely. they want to be in the C-suite, but they are not getting the opportunity to do so. So for me, it's more being cognizant of the idea of what do we need to do to support them in order to get there? And what does that look like? Because the burden of caretaking, and it's not, I, I will say just even what I have seen um, in my own anecdotal <laughs> life is like, it's not just caretaking for kids. It's caretaking for elderly parents. It's caretaking for other people. And I don't think that that is unique to me or my family. But when you have to do that, what does that look like in terms of, okay, now I have to drop out of the workforce or now I have to figure out how does that look in terms of scheduling my day? Like, do I do it from nine to three or... You know, and, and people are, some people are just not amenable to that. Some, some employers are not okay with it. They don't want it. And I think that's a larger point in terms of like, just talking about what does caretaking look like, uh, particularly for people who that burden falls on. And that's not always women. Sometimes it's men too, but what does that look like and how do we restructure work to be amenable to that? Like, I don't think that this should be something that people have to deal with day in and day out. And you don't, you're not giving them the time or the coverage to deal with it. 
we will certainly dig into the burden, the caregiving burden that that disproportionately falls to women, especially women of color. Uh, And more importantly, these systemic barriers that seem to be keeping them out of the workplace, especially in leadership positions. But I do think that this is a perfect segue into my next question. Still looking at this report, Alexis, um, we know that around March, there there was an influx of states that mandated lockdowns. We all went into quarantine and that prompted remote work. How is this work from home model that many companies have been forced to adopt? How is that hurting the advancement of women, if at all? Well, it, it's a it's really a crossroads, right? Because the the positive opportunity that sits here for companies and for knowledge workers in particular, right? Because let's acknowledge there are a whole set of people who can't do their jobs without showing up um, in person. But for those who have the the potential to do so, the the positive here is that remote work while this forced experiment came in the worst way in the form of a pandemic, has worked in a manner that companies never thought was possible. I mean, over 70% of employees pre-COVID said they had to be in the office five days a week. Now over 70% say they're working entirely from home. And when you ask companies, do you think you could sustain some version of this flexibility in the future? 93% say, absolutely, we're not going back. We're going to something different. It won't be entirely remote in most cases, but it won't look like it did before. And that's a really big deal because the number one thing women said historically would help was flexibility. But the problem is exactly what Bari was describing, which is this is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening with all these externalities. And one of the biggest externalities is that people are taking on a huge amount of additional responsibilities. For many people, parents, that's childcare, Um, For many, it's, as Bari said, elder care. It's, you know, taking care of wiping down their groceries, figuring out remote schooling, um, playing a lot more roles than they did in the past. And for women, this is particularly challenging because uh, women describe shouldering a lot more of that responsibility. There are plenty of men who do as well, but women disproportionately do. And in fact, just to give one example, mothers describe spending three additional hours a day on that lit, long list of other op- uh, responsibilities that we were talking about, three hours a day, 20 hours a week, that's like another half-time job. And, and we're, not, we're not doing this in an equal way. So it's now become this sort of double-double shift that women are holding that makes it hard then to show up in all the ways that you'd want to in the workplace environment and puts extra pressure on the expectation that you can maintain everything you did before, keep an even footing, and by the way, if you're in an environment that structurally already was disadvantaging you, and we'll, I'm sure, talk more about that going forward, then you feel even more like the, the cards are stacked against you when you really do, to what you really do want to be all in. Barry noted. The hard part with that is like you end up, you're trying to do both really well, and you end up doing both very, like it's the, peak of mediocrity (laughs) it's like I could teach you or I could do my job and it just doesn't work well and you have to figure out which one is the one that you want to actually do and which is the one you're going to be good at and you know I was raised by a teacher my mom taught for 40 years and I always say like if I wanted to be a teacher I know what it looks like and I would have done that And I don't. (laughs) So 
I have to figure out what does that look like now with, you know, a kindergartner and a fifth grader and still, you know, being a lawyer and like, what does this look like? And I think a lot of people don't, um, they don't really understand or grasp what it is you, you need to do to do both. I'm sure there are a number of uh, parents or those who are taking care of their elderly parents who would certainly agree with you, Bari. And so that does beg the question, uh, going back to you, Alexis, how are fathers being affected by the pandemic? Can you talk to me about any noticeable differences between the two? Well, I think everyone is feeling the, the burden here. Uh, you know, the, the number of households where the conversation about, no, I think I just did the dishes, isn't it your turn? <laughs> I, I think I just um, uh, did the Zoom homework. Uh, why don't you take a swing? Uh, it, it's sort of universally true. But the piece I think we need to note in this context is, is two things. First, you know, women are having a different experience in the workplace to begin with. Before we even stepped into the virtual world, this was true. Um, they're facing, um, they're more likely to be onlys. So women in general, about 20% of them are likely to say, I often frequently show up in a context where I'm the only one. And for women of color, that number is more like 40%. For senior women, it's much higher as well. For LGBTQ populations as well. And that's important because it comes with things like microaggressions. And these are not unique to women but they are particularly common for women and they're especially common if you're often and only. And what that means is you already face headwinds in your day-to-day -day interactions, generally not intended, but these are things like, you know, you're asked to credential yourself, you're talked over, someone else takes your idea and runs with it and gets the credit for it. Um, you're asked to do the office housework, right? These are all small moments that make you feel like you're having a harder time making progress in the workplace. And they just are experienced by women, by senior women, by women of color, anyone who's really has an, a degree or dimension of otherness with a much, much higher rate. And then you put that in the context of COVID. And while we have this equalizer effect that we're all here, we're all able to be on video in a virtual context, you also don't have the support network coming in for women in particular um, and mothers in many cases in sponsorship and support to combat those microaggressions and those challenges. And so I think we see that parents in general are struggling certainly with the complexity of the homeschooling environment, the, the extra hats they're trying to wear. But when you look specifically in the data, you know, 70% of fathers will say, oh, I'm, I'm balancing the workload of what comes extra with COVID equally, but only 44% of mothers would agree with them. So there is a perception gap here that that ties to a reality we see consistently over time, which is that women just shoulder a lot more of this. And then it just, what it does is it adds to the load of what they're then trying to accomplish to stay you know, competitive, to stay high performing and to achieve everything they want in the workplace too. Just a couple more questions for you, Alexis, about this report that you co-authored before I then turn it over to your fellow panelists. There seems to be a huge focus on mental health within this report. Can you walk us through some of those findings and why are you underscoring mental health at this time? Yeah, this is a huge area and probably the biggest thing when I talk to executives that they feel is new in terms of the role they need to play to help, which is not that mental health support wasn't important before, but the need for an honest and open conversation now is so critical. And the real reason is 
burnout underneath it. We have a very high proportion of employees saying that burnout is a significant factor they're, they're wrestling with, anxiety, stress, exhaustion. And these are all correlated with people feeling now like, hey, I thought this was a sprint. It's becoming a marathon. I'm not sure we have the boundaries around what we're doing. And we're also operating in the context of a tremendous amount of uncertainty and a health crisis that for many individuals is having devastating impacts on their communities and really putting pressure and stress on their the safety and wellness of their family. And so having companies now having to think about this question of mental health and having individuals trying to figure out how to have that conversation and support mental health is critical. And what we're seeing is that while companies are trying to step in, the vast majority of them have upped their mental health resources. At the individual level, managers and leaders often don't know what to do. And so 73% of companies are saying, please go have a conversation with your employees about mental health and how they're doing. But then employees say only about 35% of the time, my manager has that conversation with me. And I think it just shows how critically important this is, but how we haven't really armed people to know how to engage in a workplace context on something like that that's so important but feels so personal. I would even ask you, Alexis, like, and, and you, the manager might have the conversation, but what is the substance of the conversation? Like, I mean, because you could, you know, I could talk about a lot of things, but I may not get where you need me to go. Yeah. And yeah. that to me is also something that I think is very interesting. Um, just, you know, and I, um, just to your point, a lot of people don't want to have those conversations with their manager because there may be a culture of fear in their, yeah. in their particular work environment. Um, so they don't want to seem like they're weak or that maybe what's perceived is that they're weak. Um, they don't want to be perceived as like they have some kind of political opinion that their manager doesn't have. And I think sometimes it also can go the complete other way. Like for me, I'm not a wallflower. I'm going to tell you how I feel about whatever I feel whenever I feel it. Sometimes people don't want that either. Because it's like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And, but you need to be prepared for all of those things, particularly if you're in, in leadership, you need to know how to handle that. And some people don't, whether that's a personal thing, but also some people just don't because it makes them uncomfortable generally in a professional standpoint. But, you know, if your subordinates need that, you're going to have to figure out how to actually deal with it. And I, what I have seen is people have not really been able to handle that. Well, I think, yeah. you make, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, please do go on, Alexis. I think you hit on an important point, which is a conversation is good. It's better than not having one. But if you don't have any tools to offer people to help them through the moment, there's only so much you can do. And so for a lot of folks, actually, what they need is the ability then to help get the resources, to rethink the workload or the hours of the day, to help problem solve boundaries. And these are all things we're, saying, we're seeing people say that they don't feel like they, they, they may not even feel empowered to do, but they certainly, even if they're empowered to do it, they, they don't know how to do that in a fair and equitable way. 
And we definitely will discuss that and provide some tangible uh, advice at the end that our attendees can walk away with. But Joyce, I am chopping at the bits to hear from you because you've been cited as one of the most powerful women in finance. You're currently at JP Morgan. And the financial sector is an industry that admittedly has a considerable amount of, of female representation, except at the leadership level where you currently sit. Can you give us some insight uh, into your anecdotal experience? Well, it's just great to be here and just to hear all of the insights. And McKinsey always puts out such a great report. Um, well, there are some silver linings to this crisis. Um, the, the real conversations are starting to happen because they have to happen right now. And I do think that, you know, the positive thing is that if you have a, a job and financial services has a lot of this where digital technologies um, can be employed, I don't think you're going to go back to the old working model. You're going to have some hybrid combination of organizing work from home and work from office post-pandemic. Um, and and businesses have had to make provisions for women and for all of their employees because of the pandemic. So that's one positive thing. And the conversations are starting to happen. If you were afraid to have them, you're almost being forced to have them right now because the childcare situation is one that is just forcing that to happen as the schools um, you know, just have not been able to stay reopened um, in many cases. But I think that um, you know, in the financial services, they're doing a much better job um, at recruiting at the junior level. So you see it start 50-50, but then it turns more into a pyramid. And what we really try to look at is what point do we start losing women in their 30s? And when you start out, you usually have a manager where you're getting quite a lot of instruction and you're following directions and there are training firms, but it's really somewhere in your 30s where it starts to get a lot trickier. You're juggling you know, children, um, also trying to show that you have those front office skills. You I think have handle all of the responsibilities and client interaction on your own. And that is a period where we have found that um, women really, you, you need to find them at that period, not later on and say, why didn't they get to a, um, a different level? But at that period, and you know, start giving them kind of the the toolkit and the skills so that they can um, you retain them and retain the talent. Because I I feel like it's that sort of vice president level where you begin to really see the women the attrition occur. And then if you really start it late in the career to address some of those things, you don't even have the pool of people um, to work with. And there's still certain parts of finance, um, you know, like the trading business, where there are still very, very few women. So it's not hard to attract really good women to finance, but um, keeping them there, getting them to senior levels um, is very different. So I think, you know, the great thing about, um, you know, this period is the hybrid models, the flexibility um, the discussions are happening. Um, but I think the hard thing that we do see is that, you know, you still have that, um, you know, women need to be in the room where it happens. And that just isn't happening um, to the degree that you would sometimes want. And the, um, uh, and, and I think that, uh, We've tried to do a number of different things with the women's networks, um, and I think the other panelists probably have the same thing. You know, some of it has been mentoring. Some of it has been men as allies. If you don't have the men in the conversation, you're not going to be able to make those changes. And, you know, and some of this has been things like um, you know, ma maternity buddies 
we've had that because that's another period where we have a lot of women who really have a hard time balancing it all. But I think one good thing that is coming out of COVID-19 is the childcare discussion is kind of front and center right now. And it's it's not just um, you know at a firm level, you're starting to see it at more of a policy level as well, that uh, the childcare problem is really a, an impediment. Like if you have part of the office going back to work, a lot of the women are really saying more than the men, I can't come back into the office, even if I would want to, because that still disproportionately falls on me. And it is starting a conversation where we are looking at what other countries are doing. And, you know, the U.S. is one of the you know, few advanced economies that really doesn't have good policies on this. So I think you know, what this crisis has done is really accelerate a lot of conversations. Um, it's made them um, happen with more candor than we might have seen, just because everybody's facing it head on in their own household right now. And also because what was temporary now looks like it's going to become, you know, more of just a change dynamic in the workplace over a period of time. So I don't think we go back to the way that we were working before COVID-19. I think you're going to actually evolve to a different model that's more rotational, more of a hybrid, and and things that were taboo and couldn't be discussed, you, you, you can have those conversations right now, which is still very different than solving the problem though. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I think, um, and just you can look at other companies that decided to give up their leases in San Francisco, like cul-de-sac, um, my former company, All Turtles, which is great. Uh, get, like these companies are giving up their leases and saying you can just work remote and do whatever works for you in that, you know, within a, a time frame. And I think that that to me is where I would, I personally would like to see work headed because I think that actually um, makes more sense and is better for people who are caregivers. And be, and I'm always careful to say caregivers because it could be, you know, my situation in which I have two children, I have a five-year-old and 10-year-old, but I also have a mom who is pushing 70. <laughs> and it's the sandwich. So I might have to do both. And um, I just remember helping her when she was dealing with my grandmother and everything else. And you just have to be cognizant of that. Like everybody's situation is different. And I don't feel like um, the traditional model of work is set up to help for that. And I think if you want people and you want good people, you have to also be aware of the fact that they may not be able to do it within these parameters so you have to have the flexibility to do it and um i feel like covid has taught me if it has taught me nothing else it has taught that um because it's you know it's working and it's homeschooling and you're not really good at either of them at that point and <laughs> yeah, you just I, I have to figure it out so 
so many women have said that, you know, there's not a clear end to the work day anymore. Everything kind of blurs into another day. It used to be that you have the benefit maybe of not having a commute, having more flexibility, being able to get things done digitally. But then um, I think the whole mental health piece of it, there isn't a clear end of the day. Um, and also your um, peers and your partners sometimes feel like they can kind of call you anytime, whereas it would have been in more of a defined period of time. So I think everybody is getting, you know, adjusted to um, just how do you put boundaries in place at a point where everything is happening, you know, sort of work from home and your children are at home. And sometimes if you've got a working spouse um, or partner, they're also at home as well. So the boundaries are all just getting very blurred. Yeah, I think... Um... Because I do want to make sure that we get through all the questions. Um, so the quick shift here, if that's all right with everyone. Uh, Bar- Bar- Barry, I do want to hear from you uh, because you brought up the fact that, you know, women who are intersectional experience in different, have different experiences. We all witness uh, the civil unrest that gripped the nation back in June. So I want to touch on some key stats that I saw in the report, and I'd love for you to weigh in, Bari. Uh, according to the report, 42% of Black women said that they feel uncomfortable sharing their thoughts about racial inequity with others at work. That's in comparison with 19% of all women surveyed and a mere 14% of all men surveyed. Bari, what do you think companies can do to make employees, especially BIPOC women, feel safe about discussing racial inequity? So um, the first thing I would say is like, you have to be very, like you have to be genuine in your concern for the topic because people know if it's fake or you're doing it to, you know, to have a look or to seem you're doing something a certain way and people won't do it if they feel like you're not actually genuine and honest about it. So um, that is the first thing I would say. Uh, And I feel like leadership with some of those things comes from the top down. But if you have a leadership team and and let's say it's 10 people, but only four of them really are for it, and the other six are like, yeah, I'd really rather not talk about it. There's nothing you can do at that point. It's just, if that were the case in my situation, I would just make myself available and talk to people who want to talk to me about it. Um But I also am very clear, and I have said this literally everywhere I have been and worked, and I will continue to say this everywhere I work. I am willing to die on that hill. And because to me, it's just, it's personal, but also I feel like if you are not taking care of your employees from a strategic standpoint in terms of mental and emotional health, they're not gonna do the work because they don't they're not there like they're just not available and so I will die on that hill one because and most importantly because it's personal but two it's because you're not gonna get what you want out of them if you're not actually taking care of this or thinking about it and you know for some people you have the luxury to not think about it and that's fine. That is your lived experience. And I respect that. And that's okay. But it's not mine. And so I am not going to leave black and brown people 
out on this ledge when they're saying that this is an issue. Like, it's just never something I would do, like, ever. Absolutely. Well, Joyce, this discussion of gender inequity certainly isn't new. You are a data-driven analyst. The financial sector, the tech sector are all driven by numerical figures and stats. In light of this, why do you think little has changed for women in the workplace, despite an overwhelming amount of data that touches on this issue and highlights the benefits of closing gender-related gaps? Well, I, I think there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of guidelines, but there hasn't been as much progress on saying here are the measurable actions and commitments that you need to take. And so one thing that J.P. Morgan did, you know, I'm one of the senior sponsors for our women's network, which is called Women on the Move. But this was something that actually came from Jamie Diamond himself. He said, you know, I really want to move the needle on this. So the goals completely changed. Um, it changed from being more of this internal women's network to saying, you know, we have three goals. We want to lend $10 billion to women-owned businesses over three years. And last year, J.P. Morgan did like $3.75 billion. Um, we want to advance financial literacy. So I've been on the board of um, you know, a group called Girls Inc., which really deals with girls who are six to 18 years old, um, and we put in a whole financial literacy program for them. And then the third point is we want to help the J.P. Morgan women advance their careers. But it was actually putting numbers to a lot of these goals that made a difference. And um, very similarly for all underserved communities, like just uh, a few um, weeks ago, J.P. Morgan announced, you know, we have a $30 billion commitment that we're going to make um, really focused on affordable housing for you know, underserved um, Black and Latinx communities. But until you actually had um, numbers, targets, and dates put to it, a lot of it was conversations. Um, and you, know, you didn't have actionable um, steps tied to it. So some of the steps that have been taken, like saying you need this many women in your board of directors in California, California leading you know, that discussion has really changed the metrics. And when you look at why European women are further ahead, it's because it's really been mandated into the policies. So there is a need to actually you know, come out with you know, commitments and actions and targets and to have senior management get behind it because you can have great intentions um, and you can have um, you know, a lot of mentoring happen without having as much change until you actually see those types of action steps that are being taken. And I, I do think the good news is that there's more uh, women, um, you know, people of color who are more vocal now about what needs to change in corporate culture because of COVID-19 than we've seen in the past. But it was really tying it to some of these you know, numeric targets that made a difference because, you know, you could present all of the data. So I think it's a combination of identifying at what point do you start to lose women and that diversity, even though you've attracted the talent there. And then it's also saying, what are we doing to actually put out measurable targets where um, it, people are really being called out on it? We've underperformed something, you know, in a business that's so used to being based on numbers that we haven't hit this certain metric. And that's all pretty new. I mean, I've been working on Wall Street for 32 years, but a lot of these things where we really said, look, here's the target 
um, you know, only within the last couple of years. And, um, you know, and I'm seeing that across sort of not just, um, you know, women's groups, but just on the whole diversity and inclusion agenda overall. Um, you know, it is when you actually say we're going to hire this many people, we're going to go out to a much more diverse set of schools that we don't traditionally recruit at. The target is that it has to be 50-50, and we're going to report out who isn't 50-50. But it is not just talking about the data and why we haven't met and why it isn't even. It's basically saying, here are the targets that you need to have, and here's a time frame where we expect you to show measurable progress. Honestly, for me, that is um, – so when I have done – uh, diversity work or consulting or just even giving people advice, that's the first thing I say is like, sometimes you have to go somewhere that you haven't been to get something that you haven't gotten. And it, it, honestly, that's, that's literally something that my grandmother used to tell me. It was like, to get something you haven't had, you have to do something you haven't done. And that means, okay, you say you want black engineers. How come you haven't been to North Carolina anti? Why have you not been to Alabama anti? Like everybody isn't at Stanford and Berkeley and everywhere else. You like you have to do that. So I really appreciate you saying that, Joyce, because it's you know people have to step outside their comfort zone to find the talent. Like talent is everywhere, but the access and opportunity is not. I think you hit the nail on the head, Barry. Um, it, it's really about expanding your pool of qualified candidates and, and that that overall talent pool. Uh, I do want to I do want to ask you both, uh, Alexis and Joyce. I know you don't have a crystal ball to be able to see into the future, but theoretically speaking, based on the research that Alexis has shared, do you think COVID nineteen will lead to a, a regression for women, particularly women in finance? Is is there an opportunity here for women? Oh, <laughs> we're doing market predictions now on the, on the pipeline. Uh, well, let me start and pass it then to you, Joyce. I, I, history would say we are at risk, that despite this isn't about women not wanting it, it's not about them being there and at the table, it's about them structurally facing headwinds, disproportionately being impacted outside the workplace in ways that compound the challenges they face inside the workplace. And history would say, we will lose ground because of that. I think the opportunity here is to seize on what we've been talking about in terms of flexibility and some of these other factors, as well as this conversation just now on talent pools. I mean, 73% of companies think they're gonna open up new talent avenues if they release the constraint about geography in where they require people to live. And that's really important for women because women are more likely to be in a dual career house. And so they are more likely to be trading not just one person's choices, but multiple people's choices about when to move for a job or switch gears or hop. And so I think there's a lot of potential there that we could actually, rather than lose ground, I mean, this is the crossroads. We could accelerate into this because we say, Let's actually put some boundaries around this. Let's solve for all the factors, not just the ones traditionally we did, where we pretended the rest weren't happening, or that was somebody else's job to figure out the household um, and the other factors. And let's open up the gates of the talent pools in really broader uh, ways. And maybe we could lean into this and come out the other side, not just by holding the ground, but maybe even gaining more. 
Yeah, and I, I think Alexis makes um, great points, but you know, you need to lean into the technology, but there are so many fields that women are in where that's not a possibility in the services sector. So what I have seen with every crisis is it does tend to set back women and minorities. And a couple of things we've looked at, we've looked at women-owned businesses. Um, now they already start with 34% less capital than male-owned businesses. So then you have a crisis like this, um, you know, with lockdowns, you're already starting with a deficit and the access to capital is more difficult. Um, and, and, and that's something that, um, you know, compounds itself. Or you look at just that for every dollar that a white male earns, I mean, if you're Latinx or, or, or black, it's about 70% to um, you know, a white male, for women, you know, you, you're also at a deficit to start with. So I think that the crisis ends up, you know, being a setback, but it ends up being very bifurcated as well. So if you're in a field where you can lean into the technology and you're already a senior person, that's very different than if you're in this high growth period of your career where both the visibility makes a lot of difference and the connectivity, um, you know, with your um, peers and managers, but you, you, you just don't have the same amount of options. So what we've really looked at is sort of just, you know, the inequity piece of it. Um, and I do think that there is, you know, much more serious talk about this and corporations are having to change because shareholders are demanding that. Um, and I, I think you're also at a crossroad, just given how polarized um, everything is in the United States right now, where this whole discussion is happening. You need business and government to work together um, if you're really going to overcome some of these disparities. So I think the dialogue, I mean, if anything, COVID-19 has just accelerated everything. Um, and um, it's, it's and, and things that we thought we wouldn't be able to change very quickly, you had no choice but to change them overnight. So that's one of the positive things about it, but it also it usually is that in a crisis like this, the inequities are, in, are increasing, they're not decreasing. Mm -hmm. Barty, you've been a leading voice for diversity in tech, an industry that's renowned for being heavily skewed white and male. You also wrote a book titled Diversity in the Workplace. Can you talk a bit about hiring practices during COVID-19? How can companies prioritize diversity when hiring freezes and furloughs all seem widespread, have been widespread, and may very well continue uh, into Q1 2021 and beyond? Ruth, you saved this for the end. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the hardest question. You saved it for the end. Um. Honestly, I would say the easiest thing I would tell people to do, because literally I just had to walk off for like a minute and a half. It's like, oh, crying child. But you have to, but you have to listen to your employees. And I think honestly, that's just been something that I have seen is a recurring theme that has been hard for companies is, um, and I don't want to be that person who stereotypes or says, this particular group has it easier but i will say straight able-bodied married white men have been coasting through this pandemic in terms of like childcare and everything else because it's like oh well, my wife is doing this and like well what about the people who are the wives like we <laughs> like we have to do all of this and it's like you know it's ginger rogers she did everything 
that you were doing except danced backwards. So <laughs> it's kind of feels like that, but it's, I don't know how you make people relate to that, but it's the sense of, you just need to listen to your employees. I know um, Joyce mentioned this before in terms of like commute, but yeah, people seem to think that you have more time now because you're not commuting. I actually feel I have less because it's a five-year-old in kindergarten here and a 10-year-old in fifth grade. And I have to figure that out and also still do work. So that's actually not helpful. That's not more time. <laughs> and, but people seem to think that you have it. And um, that just may be from their own perspective. And, and the people who have said this to me typically have been men who are married and have someone who's handling all the childcare and caretaking issues. But I think you just need to listen to your employees and figure out what it is that they actually need and figure out how to accommodate that. Um, Cause it's going to be different for everybody. I don't think my situation is necessarily, you know, it might not be the same as Joyce's may not be the same as Alexis's may not be the same as somebody else that I work with, but you need to figure that out and see, you know, what can you do to make me most productive and also accommodate the fact that my kids are home. So, yeah, just just a follow up with that. Um, and Alexis and Joyce, please feel free to chime in here. I cover DNI at Forbes, and so I'm assuming that if you're a corporation at this time that does have furloughs or layoffs, now would be a great time to really partner and collaborate with your affinity groups, your ERGs, uh, any outside networks that tailor, for example, uh, you know, networks for Black engineers and so on. Now would be the time to really drill in to collaborate and to put money and investment towards those diversity initiatives. Um, and I'm sure you all, you all, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I'm sure you all would agree. I do want to make sure that I get in at this question because I think it is critical and it's uh, for, to direct it toward you, Joyce. The McKinsey report touches on financial worry in the era of COVID and it appears that women disproportionately listed financial insecurity as their top concern. Can you talk to us about the American financial landscape now and in the future? Uh, and the second part of that question, how do you think the economy will look in the coming years and, and how will it affect Americans across lines of gender, race, class, and, and socioeconomic status? Well, the key thing I want to say is that you can't um, confuse a rebound with a recovery. So we had the most synchronized downturn ever. Every economy that we covered went down in the second quarter um, to collapse. And then you had a rebound in the third quarter you know, from a total collapse. And now here in the fourth quarter, you're in the very, very murky part of the recovery. And the word I would just use is incomplete it's an incomplete recovery. Um, even at the end of 2021, we think you're going to be, you know, four to five percent of GDP percentage points below GDP of where you were pre-pandemic. And you've seen that also sort of the easy part of the job losses have been recovered. And now you're getting much more of a slowdown. And that's going to disproportionately hurt women more because it's hurting the services sector more. And a lot of these um, you know, parts of the economy, like retail and the restaurants, you know, they're not going to come back in the same way. So when we take a look at this, just to put it into perspective, um, I mean, we're looking at a fiscal deficit that is the largest fiscal deficit that we've had in 84 years. 
you know, 16% of GDP, um, a massive increase um, in the debt burden, um, and GDP that's going to be 5% below where it was, and some jobs that are not going to come back. You know, as you know, as we saw it, so this is going to hurt um, women more. And I think you know, we tried to you know look at ways where you can actually how do you look at creating jobs um, in communities um, and that are you know well-paying jobs, and that's a lot of what the programs that we've announced more recently at J.P. Morgan have been about. Um, how do you actually you know, get out to parts of the community, um, you know, and actually um, put in training skills that prepare them for the jobs of tomorrow, not the services sector, but into more of the high value added jobs. And how do you recruit from some of the, um, you know, city colleges and community colleges, you know, how can you get policies that move more towards grants rather than saddling students with student loans? So this is a much worse crisis than 2008. Um, we used to look at 2008 and say that was the bellwether for, um, you know, just sort of how the world has changed. But this crisis um, has much more, you know, lasting damage that is um, going to linger. And, uh, and I think that until you see an effective vaccine that's available for widespread use, which is probably not going to be well, well into 2021, you're going to continue to have to have the need for more fiscal stimulus. Um, and every um, facility that is looked at as a temporary facility, it's going to have to become um, a more of a permanent facility. So I think, you know, the, the, the whole thing is that, you know, we'll recover and go back to where it was. This is just not going to happen, not just because industry itself is changing, but also because the um, you know, growth outlook the amount of fiscal and debt burden that you're going to have going forward is also going to be a huge drain on future generations going forward. And you've now got interest rates um, that are, you know, at an average of, um, for looking at, you know, bond markets, 1%. So very different environment um, than we've had post-crisis where everybody's been used to thinking, you know, we can come out of this and go back to something that is, uh, you know, comparable to where we were before, you're at a much, much bigger deficit this time. I wish we had to pause here very quickly uh, because we do have audience questions and we're running out of time. My sincerest apologies. Um, But Joyce, I do want you to keep your mic on because you brought up uh, the fiscal stimulus. I have a question here from Lynn who states that we've now seen the government step in with a stimulus plus leave during the pandemic, something most states haven't done with parental leave. What is the likelihood of parental leave being enacted post-pandemic? Well, we got to see the outcome of the election, but I do think you are going to see a much more serious discussion about childcare policy if it is a Biden administration. I mean, that's one thing that they have sort of put out, you know, front and center that when you compare the United States to other advanced economies, we're like the one country that doesn't have good policies set up in place about this. So I think, you know, depending on the outcome of the election, you know, that discussion um, will happen. But we also have, you know, the prospect of it being a divided government. Um, you know, so that means that getting radical and chan- transformative change through is also not that easy. So the, the fiscal stimulus, and they keep on having to do, you know, the fourth package, another package, you know, they need to do another stimulus package be- until there is widespread effective vaccine. There really just isn't much of a choice um, but to do that. Um, and I, I And I think that, you know, all of us, when we're trying to do the planning for return to work, first it was, oh, it'll be the beginning of the year. Now everybody's more or less writing off this whole school year. 
um, and saying that we hope by the next school year in September, we're going to be back to something where, you know, women can start planning more around the child care issue. But you can even just see how, um, you know, I remember when this all started in March, everybody was like, well, it's just the spring term. Then it became, you know, will they open in the fall? Will it be fine by the new year? So it keeps on having to um, be sequenced out. So I don't know if you will have the parental leave addressed as quickly as you might want, but a lot of the policies I think will be discussed um, if it is a Biden administration. It will be you know, what he's put in his platform, um, the minimum wage, raising it to $15, you know, child care policies, um, putting back some of the Obama policies on fair housing. There's a number of things where you know women are disproportionately affected, where uh, they are on the agenda. You know, if we do have a change. So I just want to give some historical context to the idea of this is um, I know people are like, oh, we're going to wait for a vaccine and then everyone will go back to school and it will be fine. But for particularly for the black American community, we remember Henrietta Lacks. We remember the Tuskegee Airmen and like some of this stuff, like you, it was trial and error and you did it on us. And so there are some people who are like, I don't want a vaccine because I don't know if this is actually going to work or, you know, how you came to that conclusion. Um, so I, I even am, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but, <laughs> but I know that some people are, but I also know that some people are particularly for these reasons. And it's, that needs to be addressed and figured out before people will say, yes, I'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've looked at, at these surveys and 50% of the population says they wouldn't take a vaccine. And some of the vaccines that are the most advanced right now in development, they require two doses. And a lot of people, if they get some symptoms after the first dose, won't go back for the second dose. And some of the vaccines also need to be transported um, in really cold temperatures, like negative 70 degrees Celsius, like you know, 30 degrees colder than the North Pole. So how are you going to get this to Brazil and India? And I think, you know, pandemics are a lot like climate change. I mean, if you can't administer this widespread and globally, how effective is it going to be? And this is why I think so many of the changes that we're talking about today are going to become more permanent. So many of these facilities that are emergency temporary facilities that we keep on having to extend, they're going to become more permanent as well. But I completely agree with Barry, just the willingness to have the trust in this process, um, you know, it, it's just not there yet. Uh, Alexis, Raquel would like to know, what does the data say about LGBTQ plus folks? How is COVID impacting career advancement for that group in particular? Yeah, it's a really important question. So what you see is any form of otherness in the workplace environment comes with an inherent penalty. And so if you are a woman, there is a degree of that because while we make up 50% of the human population, we do not represent that um, in corporate America and in job leadership positions, certainly yet. That is also true for any form of intersectionality. So for women of color, it's more challenging. And for um, LGBTQ populations, it's another, uh, another form of otherness that is often described then as being associated with many of the things we see actually for women of color and women of disability as well, which is this sense I'm often an only, I don't feel like I have the sponsorship or support I need to continue to advance. 
I face a lot more microaggressions. And in the context of COVID, what we see for these women in particular is that um, stress and anxiety burnout and just the concerns of the weight of their ability to uh, remain supported in the workplace. Uh, they're, they're actually one of the highest populations in describing along with women with disability, the sense that they're being marginalized and left behind. And it's really challenging in particular when we speak with LGBTQ populations because in some cases, they're not even sure that the psychological safety or the environment is there for them to fully share the experience that they're going through. And so you have this situation where in some cases they're, they're covering or not feeling like they're supported fully um, in this moment. And so this is one of the reasons why we kind of talked about this before, but not just um, uh, communities of, of similar groups coming together, but the importance of an, a real muscle of allyship that is like legitimate and has actual actions behind it is so critical because for many populations, particularly women with intersectionality, there are just not enough of them yet in leadership to fully take care of their own. And they will only get the support they need if we get allyship from everyone else. Very well said. Well, it is an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? I would love to hear from each of you uh, and maybe perhaps we can start with uh, you, Bari. Oh no, uh, give me the hard question and tell me to go first. Uh, I know you're well qualified to I know, like, and go. Um, I think, you know, there are certain things that really, really stick with me that my grandmother taught me and she always says, expect what you accept. So um, what I would say is people need to make sure that in order to change the world, that you have your own personal boundaries and set those boundaries and enforce them um, because you have to expect what you accept. If you allow people to call you at nine o'clock at night for a work question, that's what they're going to keep doing. So it, it seems very simple on its face, but it's, yeah, it's, Tell you, you teach people how to treat you. Joyce? Well, I would just say, you know, very simply, you know, you can always hope for the best, but you need to prepare for the worst. And that is a key lesson from COVID-19. But maybe I would just add another one that's more aspir um, aspirational, particularly since we're in this political period, just, you know, a higher level of female representation in politics. So, you know, you've had that actually it's been kind of a watershed moment for women in politics that happened at the midterm election. And now you look at sort of the key swing factor here. It's been women college educated voters. So you just hope that a lot of these policies will get addressed as you get this higher level of female representation um, in politics. And that's actually happened um, you know, more quickly than change in a lot of different industries like finance, um, you know, with just the number of women who came into the House, um, you know, in the 2018 election, you see the role that women have played in voting as well. So, you know, what's going to really change the world? A higher level of female representation in politics. Um, and then you're going to get better policies. All right, I guess I close us out. Um, I have to say, after our conversation uh, about the COVID pandemic, double, double shift. I really want the cat in the hats pickup machine that could like crawl across my house and pick up all the crayons and all the dirty dishes <laughs> and all the mess <laughs> so that I could focus um, on getting the job done. 
I think we all would. And I think that is also a stellar place to end. Thank you so much to Alexis Kripkovich, Bari Williams, and Joyce Chang for joining us today at Inform at the Commonwealth Club. We would like to remind our viewers and radio listeners that McKinsey and Company's Women in the Workplace 2020 report is available online at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programs please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Ruth Limo. Thank you so much and stay safe.